0: We find ourselves in Ephesians 4, which is a pivotal point in the book of Ephesians. The question that I want to pose is, how should, we, how should the gospel affect the way we live our lives? How should the gospel message, the message that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, died for our sins on the cross conquered sin and death by rising from the grave, ascending into heaven, and inviting us into eternal life with him, how should that message change the way we live our lives? That's an appropriate question for where we find ourselves in the book of Ephesians. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 together. This is God's word. It says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. So the question I'm asking is, how should the gospel affect the way we live our lives? The reason I'm asking that question now is because for the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, which is a six-chapter book, by the way, so for the first half of the book of Ephesians, Paul is declaring the gospel. He's making the gospel message known. He's talking about what the gospel is and what it means for those who believe in Christ. He's encouraging the Ephesian believers to rejoice in God's decision to include us in his plan of salvation. He even takes some time to make the Ephesian believers aware of his, of his heartfelt desire to build them up through prayer. And so for three chapters, I would say it simply this way. It's, it's basically all theology. It's what we should believe. And now we're going to see this transition take place in chapter 4 where we're going to move on from what we should believe to how what we should believe should impact how we should live our lives. In other words, how should the gospel affect the way we live our lives? That's what Paul is going to spend the next three chapters and the rest of the book of the Ephesians answering. He's going to move on from this is the gospel message that we hold to, to this is how it affects the way we live our lives. It gets very practical for here on out. And so our mission as a church, as redemption church, is to declare and demonstrate God's plan of redemption. God's plan of redemption being another way of saying the gospel of Jesus. So you could say it this way. The first three chapters were declaring the gospel. And now in the next three chapters, Paul going to tell us how to demonstrate the gospel in our daily lives. And he starts with this. He says, therefore, I, a prisoner in the Lord, anytime you see the word therefore, you should ask the question, what is it therefore? And so he's pointing back to what he's just said. Therefore means that what I'm about to say to you is a response to what I've already said to you. So you notice this transition. In fact, as we look at the next three chapters, this transition there's a very similar phrase that happens again and again. Here he says, therefore, live worthy of the calling you received. Later on in chapter 4, he's going to say, therefore, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live. That's non-Christians in the futility of their thoughts. And then in chapter 5, he'll say, therefore, be imitators of God. Those, in in essence, are, are three different ways of saying something very similar. In light of the gospel, live like this. In light of the message of chapters 1 through 3, live your life the way he's going to prescribe in chapters 4 through 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord. We'll talk in a minute about why he identifies himself that way. But let's take just a moment and, and understand the importance of this transition that Paul is making in his letter. Because up till now, there's been a strong emphasis on what God has done. There's a, it's, all a bit, it's been all about what he has done. There's been really absolutely nothing in the first three chapters of what we have done. It's all been what God has done. God chose us. God predestined us, adopted us, redeemed us, made known to us the mystery of his will. This is all in the first three chapters. In him we have received an inheritance from the one who works out everything according to his will. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He did this by sending Christ to die for our sins. He raised him from the dead. He seated him at the right hand in the heavens, subjected everything under his feet, and appointed him as the head over the church. God did all of that. You and I did none of that. That was all his effort. It was all of his doing. So what did we do? Well, looking at the first three chapters of this book, what we did is we sinned. We lived dead in our sins. We weren't seeking to please him. We were living to please ourselves. But chapter 2 says, but God, being rich in mercy, stepped in and saved us by his grace. It wasn't us who did this. It was God and God alone. That is the theological foundation that Paul is about to build on. The gospel message is that you and I did none of this. Jesus did it all, and he, by his grace, saves us. We were far away from him, but he brought us near, Paul tells us. We are no longer foreigners or strangers as we once were in his kingdom, Paul tells us. Rather, we are fellow citizens and members of his household, Paul tells us. Co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise of Jesus through the gospel message. God did all of this. He brings those who are far away near to him. He rescues us when we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. When we're living only to please ourselves, not living to please the God who created us and gave us life. It is God who steps in and spares us from the penalty of our sins. The point of chapters 1 through 3 is that we have this great God who has redeemed us by the gospel. Paul is declaring God's plan of redemption and rejoicing in it. But lest we begin to think that our only response is that we should praise him with our mouths, we now look at how our entire lives should be a response to the gospel. In other words, when it comes to our salvation, yes, it's God who did it all. It's he who mercifully rescued us. There was nothing that we contributed, nothing that we brought to the table in terms of earning our salvation, in terms of making ourselves worthy. God just showed mercy on us. He saved us by his grace. But that does not mean that there's nothing for us to do. So he says, therefore I, a prisoner in the Lord, Paul's laying down his credentials. It's an interesting way to describe yourself. A prisoner in the Lord. Well, what we know about this phrase is that Paul was, in fact, a prisoner. He was literally in chains. He was arrested and held in jail for preaching the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. He was a prisoner in the Lord. That gives him a little bit of street cred with the rest of the believers because they know this guy's really in. There's nothing that's gonna stop him from sharing the gospel. There's nothing that's gonna stop him from fulfilling the calling that God has placed on his life. He's even willing to go to jail for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think the reason Paul takes a moment here and identifies himself this way is because some of what he's going to ask them to do in response to the gospel, is gonna challenge them. Some of the application of his message in chapters one through three is going to be very hard for them to hear. There's going to be some things that he's going to ask them to do that they're going to be tempted to say, yeah, I don't know about that, Paul. I'm not sure I'm willing to go that far for the gospel of Jesus. So he says, I, Paul, prisoner for the Lord, the one who's willing to go all the way. The one who is yet to stop at anything in obedience to Jesus Christ. He's laying down his credentials. He's reminding them lovingly. I don't think we should interpret this as as he's strong-arming them. He's lovingly reminding them of the sacrifice that he has made. The sacrifice that he has been willing. It was in their own city. The book of Ephesians is a letter written to the church in the city of Ephesus. It was in that very city that Paul nearly was arrested and imprisoned for preaching the gospel there. They had to sneak him out of the city because they thought the people who were getting upset about his preaching of the gospel might arrest him or perhaps even kill him for what he was doing. So he's reminding them of his commitment. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord. Paul's in chains for the sake of the churches he writes these letters to. He goes on to say, urge you to live worthy of the calling. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. What does it mean to live worthy of the calling you have received? Let's start to fill out some things on the handout. The first one you'll see there is that living worthy is the call to live lives that reflect the miracle of salvation that God has caused to happen in our lives. The call to live worthy is to live lives that reflect the miracle of salvation that God has caused to happen in our lives. It's a call to response. It's a call for us to to live lives that reflect what God has graciously and mercifully done in our lives. Now we have to be very careful here because when it comes to, to... our part in what we're going to do in response to the gospel. We don't want to slip into the idea that we are somehow earning, justifying, or maintaining our salvation through our obedience. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. Salvation is by grace apart from our ability to earn it. At the same time, though, salvation by grace does not negate our responsibility to live according to what God has done. In other words... Our obedience is a result of our salvation, not our salvation the result of our obedience. Do you follow that? Our obedience is the result of our salvation because we've been saved by grace. Because God has shown us his mercy in this way. It, the result of that is our obedience to him. But it's not the other way around. We, we have to fight to, to not get this twisted in our minds. Our salvation is not the result of our obedience. Obedience does not lead to salvation, it flows out of salvation. That means we don't have to come to him already having ourselves together. It's one of the greatest parts of the message of the gospel there is, that God receives us as we are. He receives us sometimes quite broken, ensnared in sin. Unable to get ourselves up off the floor. Unable to clean ourselves up. He welcomes us just as we are. We don't have to earn our way into his love. We don't have to earn our salvation. Jesus already did that. In fact, by thinking that we can earn salvation or God's love, we are insulting what Jesus has already done on our behalf. We're, we're moving forward as if what he did was not good enough. That we need to do something in addition to it. Our obedience is a result of our salvation, not our salvation result of our obedience. So I just want to get that in our heads as we move from talking about what we should believe to what we should do. Let's keep these things in proper perspective. And so since God's grace toward us has brought salvation, so therefore... Let us live lives worthy of the calling we've received. That's what Paul's saying to us today. Live lives worthy of the calling you have received. I want to unpack that a little bit for you, but I just want you to take a moment and think, what does that look like for you? What's that going to mean in your life? What does that mean, not just on Sunday mornings, on Monday mornings, when you get up and go to work, or when you get up and go to school, or when you're hanging out with your friends and they wanna do things that you don't think are consistent with how Jesus has called you to live your life, what does it mean in those moments to live lives that are worthy of the calling that you have received? What does it look like when you when you face your own personal temptations to fight against temptation in the name of living worthy of the calling that you have received? Well, let's think about this. What does it mean to live lives worthy of the calling we have received? As I was thinking about this we this this week, there was something that came to my my mind. There's a story um, that NFL Films does these uh, football life stories. I don't know how many of you have ever seen those. It's not important if you haven't seen them. Um, But they document very successful uh, players who've played in the NFL and they tell their life story. One of the best ones that I've ever seen, I I guess I haven't seen that many of them so I shouldn't, shouldn't say that, but a really good one to see is the one they did on Jerome Bettis. And uh, Jerome Bettis, I assume, as everybody here knows, uh, was one of the greatest running backs to ever play for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, Hall of of Fame running back, really cool guy. Um, Just really made a big impact through his career in the NFL. But one of the things that really impressed me about Jerome Bettis' story was a story that he told, I believe it was when he was being inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. He said when he was going off to college, His dad said to him, and he he grew up in a working class family. His dad said, son, I don't have much to give you, but I give you a good name. And then he said, so don't screw it up. And as you watch Jerome Bettis, at one of the most important moments in his life as he's being inducted into the Hall of Fame, tell this story and the emotion that comes over him. You know that meant something to him. He took that very seriously. His father, who didn't have much to give him, was giving him a good name. He was giving him that mantle to carry throughout his life to be a good man, to make a good impact on society. You know, I'm... My name is actually Fred Neal III. I'm the third of the Fred Neals in my family. Um, something, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not generally excited that my parents named me Fred. But there is, there is some, I mean, you know, it's, it's the 2000s now, right? But there is something that as I've grown into adulthood that has meant a lot to me uh, looking back of the generations of Freds in my family and saying, I want to carry that name well. My grandfather was an outstanding person, very good reputation in the community, uh, just a, a great example of a good man. My father, uh, who's um, same thing, just a, a, a great reputation. I want to carry that name well. I want to be. I, I, I want to do. I want to live worthy of that name. And as I as I look at the Freds who have gone before me, I want to live up to the standard that they have set for Fred Niels. And, you know, by God's grace, I didn't have any boys. And so there's no Fred the Fourth and, and none forthcoming. But I when what he says here, when 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 his father pulled him aside and said that story, I'm like, I think that's what Paul's calling us to. He's we've been brought into the family of God. We bear the name of Christian. We're giving this grace, something we did not earn, something that we don't even necessarily deserve, but it's a grace that has been given to us. We've been given the name of Christian, carry it well. Live worthy of the calling you have received. How do we do this? Paul goes on to give some characteristics of what it looks like to live worthy of the calling we've received. He says in verse 2 of chapter 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love. Making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So here he gives kind of a, here's a list. This is what we're looking for. Give us something practical. Something that we can strive for. Something that we can aim at. Humility. Humility is the characteristic of those who know that they don't deserve to be included in God's plan of redemption. Gentleness. Gentleness is a characteristic of those who view people in light of the gospel And therefore, value them as people who are to be built up in love and not eliminated as competitors. To act gentle towards each other is to reflect the gospel. It's to demonstrate the message that we declare. Patience. Patience is a quality that people possess when they are aware of how patient God is with them. What is our main motivation for being patient with people? Or or what, what helps us the most in being patient with other people? I think it's to be aware of how patient God is with us. We don't progress along quite as quickly as we should. And yet God's patience prevails. He sticks with us. Paul goes on to say, Bearing with one another in love. Those who bear with one another in love are those who have been empowered to forgive by the forgiveness they received. You see, in all of these things, it's the gospel that comes into our lives that empowers us to live out these characteristics. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. But there's one thing that Paul really begins to emphasize when he talks about living worthy of the calling we've received. He says in verse 3, Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And this becomes the dominant theme of the next few verses of Paul's message to the Ephesians. Keeping the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In fact, he says to make every effort. That's an important phrase to latch on to. Sometimes unity is not going to be completely up to you. Sometimes being at peace with the people around you won't be completely in your hands. But we are called to make every effort to do our very best to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul's going to show us a pattern of unity that we are to follow after. Let's continue. Oh, there's um, the next thing on the handout that I almost skipped over. Unity is a key component... To living worthy. If you want to live worthy according to the calling you've received, consider all of these characteristics: humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. But let's put the emphasis today where Paul puts it, which is on keeping unity. Unity is a key component to living worthy. The basis and pattern for this unity is right here in verses four through five, four through six. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. There is one body. That's the church. Jesus only has one church. This is interesting to us because we have many churches Every town across this country has many churches. Jesus has one church. And all of those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, who are believers in what he has done for them on the cross, are part of that church. Now, I don't know how, honestly, I don't I don't. I don't know how we reconcile that with where we're at. I don't know what it would look like for geographically for us just to have one church. I'm not even sure that's the goal or what we're speaking about here. I think the, the broader goal is that we have a unity in him even if we worship in different places and have different preferences or different styles or even believe different things on some of the non-essential things that are a part of our faith. But there is one body, and that's Jesus' church. There's only one spirit. The spirit that lives in me is the same one that lives in you. The spirit that lives in us is the same spirit that lived in those first century believers, the Christians that Paul is writing to in, in first century Ephesus. It's the same spirit. The spirit has not changed over the ages. The spirit is not different from person to person. One spirit. We are called to one hope. That hope is Jesus. In verse 4, he says, Just as you were called to one hope at your calling, our calling is to Jesus Christ. He is our one Lord. Jesus is the only head of the church. The only one who can claim headship over his body is Jesus. And it's him that we're called to. One faith and one baptism. You either believe and trust in the gospel or you don't. There's only one faith in Christianity. There's only one gospel. That's that Jesus died for our sins. If you've been baptized into the faith by publicly professing your faith and your trust in Jesus, then you came in the right way, the only way, through Jesus Christ. And then he says, there is one Father. He is above all and through all and in all. Notice the presence of all three members of the Trinity here. We have Spirit, we have the Lord, which is Jesus, and we have the Father. We have all three members of the the Trinity When God wants to talk to his people about unity, he almost always points back to the Trinity. Because the Trinity is our example of unity. It's important to know, though, that unity does not mean uniformity. Uniformity is when we're all the same and when everyone looks and acts and thinks the same. The Trinity is not three of the same. Same essence, same God, but three persons. It's a mystery, I understand that, but there is unity, not uniformity. Jesus has one role, the Spirit has one role, the Father has another role. All three of them unique in how they interact with us and in, in the part of our salvation that they have. Unity does not mean uniformity in the Trinity, and it doesn't mean uniformity among the church. I think the unity that Paul is aiming for then is a unity of mission and purpose. That's the conclusion I came to as I studied this passage. Because I'm thinking, like, what, what does, we, I mean, we use the word unity. I think everybody knows what that means. But what does that look like in the church? Does it mean we never disagree with each other? Does it mean we don't have different preferences? Does that mean that some people don't want one style of music while others want another style of music? I don't think it means that. I don't think unity is uniformity. I think it's unity of mission and purpose. And if we have unity of mission and purpose, then we have the ability to appreciate the diversity that there actually is among us. Because I know that diversity is going to help us accomplish the mission and our purpose more effectively. Just as in the Trinity, there are different roles. And what's interesting about in the Trinity, not only are there different roles, but there's even subordination. Subordination is something that's going to become very important, especially in chapter 5, when Paul gets into some human relationships. And we see here, Paul's laying the groundwork that subordination existing within the Trinity is not bad. That one member of the Trinity submits to another member of the Trinity is an example of the unity that we are called to model. Jesus subjects himself to the will of the Father. Remember when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross? What does he pray? He prays, Father, if there's any way, any way to do this other than the way we're about to do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That is an example of where subordination is a good thing. He's submitting himself to the Father's will. He's submitting himself to to what the Father has sent him to do. And so subordination, in our minds, often is a bad thing. When one person has authority or power or, or responsibility over another person, we think that's wrong and needs to be corrected. But here we see examples, even within the Trinity, of when subordination can be, can be um, part of what it looks like to have unity. So that will become very important as we, as we look in future chapters. But unity doesn't mean we're all the same. That would be bad. Instead, God has made us all different. He's made us unique from one another. We have different personalities, different dispositions, we have different preferences, we have different likes and dislikes, and most importantly, where he's going to go in the rest of this chapter, which we'll look at next week, we have different gifts, different abilities, different things that we bring to the table. God wants us to be different. I think that's even reflected in how he created us. Human, human beings, there's more uniqueness among the human species than among other species. I mean, think about that. Stink bugs, they all look the same. They all do the same nasty stuff. Black bears, try to tell one black bear from another. Other than size, there, there's really no distinctions. I mean, think about all of the different species that God has created that look and act the same. And then there's human beings. We're so unique. Not only do we look different from one another, but we act different. We behave differently. It's hard to find two human beings who think exactly alike. It just doesn't happen because God has made us unique. He's made us to be different. We're beyond animal instincts. We are thinking creatures. He has created us in his image, and he's made us diverse. As we're going to see when we look ahead, I'm just giving you a taste of what's to come next week. He's gifted us in diverse ways. And all of that works together so that we can have unity of mission and purpose. So that's why he says here, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit because you're important to one another. We're, we, us being together matters so that we can accomplish the mission and the purpose that he has given us, which is to declare and demonstrate God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. That's what he calls us to have unity on. Not that we all like the same sports teams. I mean, I'm sure I could get, I could get people pretty worked up in the room by talking about Penn State versus Pitt. Or, or, you know, some of these different rivalries that we get all excited about. It's not that we have to think the same on all things. It's that we are unified in our mission and our purpose. That is what God has called us to. That's what it means to live worthy. That's part of what it means to live worthy. And to live worthy is the call of every believer. That's the last thing that you'll see on on the outline there. To live worthy is the call of every believer. He's called all of us to this. To live worthy, to respond to the gospel by how you live your life, is your calling if you are a believer in Jesus God is not interested in spectators or fans. He's interested in those who are willing to, in in the words of Jesus, take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. To live worthy is the call that every believer should adhere to. So how is God calling you to live worthy? First and foremost, from what we've seen here, I think he wants us to live unified in our mission and our purpose. And that means we put aside things that don't matter, that won't help us accomplish what he has put us here to accomplish, and that we rally around the things that do matter. We need to come together and all have the same goal, declaring and demonstrating the gospel of Jesus right here in Lower Borough and in the surrounding community, and if, as God gives us grace to the rest of the world. You met You met that couple that was here um, last week who shared about their desire to go and take the gospel where Jesus is not known in any way, shape, or form, where the message of the gospel has not yet reached, and our opportunity as a church to, to partner with them, to be unified because we have the same mission and the same purpose, and that's that everybody would hear the gospel of Jesus and have the opportunity to believe in him for salvation. And we need to be passionate about supporting them as they go and we need to be passionate about reaching the people who are right here in our backyard. I say it almost every week, there's 150,000 people within 20 minutes of where you're sitting right now, most of whom who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. With that as our responsibility, with that as our opportunity, with that as our calling, we don't have time to fight over the things that don't matter. We don't have time to fight over our, 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 our petty preferences. We don't have time to fight over whether or not Kanye's album is any good or not. By the way, Kanye's uh, speaking at Joel Osteen's church this morning. Probably the first time they'll ever hear the gospel. God, that's just incredible. But we don't have time to, to fight over petty preferences. We've got a mission and we've got a purpose for why we are here. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live your life worthy. Live your life for the sake of the gospel. Don't come to the end of your life and say, I could have done more for Jesus. Make the decision today that you're going to live that way now. That's what you're called to. He's given us a good name. He's given us Inclusion in his family. He's brought us to himself. We were, as Paul said in the first part of Ephesians, we were strangers, foreigners in his kingdom. He's brought us near. Let's live lives worthy of the gospel. I want to ask the worship team to come up. Get ready to lead us in a couple more songs before we leave here today. As they do that, I just want to ask this question a couple of different ways. First of all, if you're a believer here today, What are you going to do to live your life worthy this week? What are you going to do to make every effort to keep the unity, the unity of our mission and of our purpose? What are you going to do to live your life day in and day out worthy of the calling that you have received? If you're not a believer here today, I want you to know this is part of what it means to come to Jesus. Yeah, he did everything that is necessary for your salvation. And he offers you this free gift of grace. But if you receive that gift, then your life needs to reflect it. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. It's the the greatest team you'll ever join to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. But understand, there's a response. And that response is to live your life worthy of the calling. Let's go ahead and close our eyes, bow our heads. Jesus, as you've called us into your church, part of that is you've called us to live in response to what you've done. Paul calls that here living worthy of the calling we've received. And he puts a strong emphasis on being unified together in purpose and mission. And so as we reflect on that, I pray that you would help us see clearly how we can live that out this week. To see what we do Monday through Friday is not just a job, but as part of the mission that you've called us to. To see what we do outside of work and in our free time. Or to see what we do when we go to school or, or whatever it is that we do from Sunday to Sunday. To see that as part of the mission that you have called us to. And may we live worthy. And Jesus, if there's anybody here today who hasn't received that calling because they haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, I pray that you'd be drawing them today. Show yourself beautiful to them. Show yourself worthy of this kind of response that we would live our lives according to the mission and the purpose that you have given us, that we would live lives worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.